Musical literacy. Hearing something new is embarrassing and difficult for the ear. Foreign music we do not hear well. Friedrich Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil. The cultural literacy of which E. D. Hirsch's book speaks is that broad background knowledge of factual matters which underlies the possibility of effective verbal communication. Being culturally illiterate then is ingredient. In being literate, period, i.e., a com- competent reader and writer of one's language. Thus, Hirsch's cultural literacy is essentially verbal literacy in a new guise. To be verbally literate is to be able to adequately comprehend the majority of the verbal com- communications addressed to a general audience that are likely to come one's way. And to be able to formulate similar communications of one's own in response, verbal literacy is the capacity to participate, usually as consumer but also as producer, in the public conversation of one's society. By recasting verbal literacy as primarily cultural literacy, Hirsch is drawing our attention to the vast role of factual knowledge, assumed in the culture and presupposed by common discourse. That goes into being able to read and write effectively, and implicitly criticizing the notion that reading or writing might be just algorithmic skills, like doing sums, involving formal rules but requiring no significant core of factual content. This cultural literacy, which, if Hirsch is correct, underwrites verbal, i.e., reading and writing literacy. I will call the narrow notion of cultural literacy. There is, however, a broader notion of cultural literacy to contend with. On this conception, being culturally literate involves not only narrow cultural literacy and the verbal literacy founded on this, but also the ability to comprehend adequately various other modes of communication, formulation, or expression central in one's culture. For example, mathematical, artistic, social, or behavioral ones. Being broadly cultural literate then is being competent in a number of going modes of discourse, verbal and nonverbal. If we now consider musical literacy, my chosen theme, we see that it can be taken in two ways: once in relation to the narrow idea, and once in relation to the broad idea of cultural literacy. In relation to the first, musical literacy can be said to consist in the sorts of factual information about music that a common reader is expected to possess, and which enable him or her to understand discourse which takes music or musicians as its subject. Thus, a re- person reading that Beethoven, astonishingly enough, wrote some of his later string quartets while he was almost entirely deaf, and required an ear trumpet. To hear even the loudest voice shouting in its bell, is aided in understanding the passage by knowing that string quartets are a kind of music. That Beethoven was a composer of great merit, and that he worked in the early nineteenth century, when small-scale, unobtrusive hearing aids were available, unavailable. On a more sophisticated level, to understand a passage like. In the initial sketch for the finale of Beethoven's Symphony Number、no. Eight, the basic ideas for the opening are evident. 
The major third in triplet rhythm at the opening, the consequent idea with a descending melodic contour, and the flat submediant as a harmonic interval. It is obviously crucial to know that a sketch here is an early version of a musical score, and not a charcoal drawing. That a major third is an interval, one should not be asking, third what? And that flat submediant is the name of a note or position on a scale, and no flatter, spatially speaking, than any other note. This sort of musical literacy is obviously of importance, despite its limited scope, because music is important in public and private life, and in the history of human achievements. But it is the second way of taking musical literacy, musical literacy as a component of broad cultural literacy, rather than as a minor element in narrow cultural literacy, that will occupy me from here on. What I will be interested in is comparing verbal, that is, reading, literacy with musical, that is, listening, literacy, as both aspects of cultural literacy broadly conceived. How is the activity of reading with comprehension, whatever the subject, like and also unlike the activity of listening to music comprehendingly? How does what is required for the first to occur compare either materially or structurally with what is required for the second to occur? Hirsch's main theme, as already suggested, is that verbal literacy is a thoroughly contextual matter. There is no such thing as understanding in a void, understanding an object or discourse without relating it to other things, either of the same kind or of a more fundamental kind. A background, a framework, a domain of reference, a set of givens is presupposed in every act of comprehension. To be a literate reader in particular, requires that one has accumulated a stock of cultural data which will be called into play by a given verbal communication, data which are needed to understand it but are not contained in it explicitly. All of this, I will argue, applies in some form as much to musical as to verbal communication. No piece of music can really be understood in isolation, out of relation to anything else. We may say outright that the first pieces of music heard by anyone, of whatever inborn ability, are not understood but only registered, to one degree or another. Such exposures serve, of course, as the basis upon which any future understanding of those or any further instances of music will be erected, but they are not themselves occasions of understanding. Understanding in any medium is relational, and always involves at some level connections to things not explicitly presented in the particular text, passage, event, pattern, or phenomenon to be understood. These connections must be acquired or laid down through experience, even if there are dimensions of musical comprehension, to be sure, which rest on universal and innate human capacities. A specific example will help us to fix the way in which Hirsch's basic insight as to what is at the core of reading literacy also applies, mutatis mutandis, to musical literacy, 
the ability to understand the majority of musical utterances in a given tradition. It should also help us to see at what point the analogy or parallel of musical understanding and reading comprehension gives out. Consider a listener confronted with the first movement of Bruckner's fourth symphony, E-flat, for the first time. What must such a listener be in possession of, cognitively speaking, if he is to grasp this music on a primary level, as it unfolds before his ears on this or later occasions? To what degree do specific facts, background information, prior training, or earlier encounters underpin such a grasp? In other words, what is minimally needed for a listener to hear what Bruckner is saying in this piece of music? In attempting to answer this question, I first offer a descriptive sketch of the comprehending listener, which seems fairly uncontroversial. It will consist of a list of things such a listener will be doing, i.e. hearing or experiencing. I will then try to bring out what is necessary for such hearings or experiencings to occur, with particular attention to the role played by contextual knowledge. Comprehending listener hears the note, hears the music as tonal, i.e. as constructed on the basis of a familiar set of eight-note scales, major and minor, and as having certain implied standards of consonance and dissonance, or stability and instability, both melodically, both melodically and harmonically. Comprehending listener hears the music as symphonic, i.e. as a large-scale utterance, which re- with regard to both span of time and number of voices or parts involved. They hear the music as romantic, 19th century in style, i.e. as having certain distinctive features and ways of developing which that term denotes. They hear the music as roughly in sonata form. They hear the music as specifically Brucknerian in character. They have an experience of the connectedness of the music, of its individual motion or flow or progression rather than merely one of discrete, momentary sounds in succession. They have a series of appropriate reactions and registerings on the order of tension and release, or expectation and fulfillment, or implication and realization during the course of the music. They hear the music's progression with some awareness of the performance means involved in generating the sounds being heard. They apprehend in large measure the gestural and emotional content of the music. They have a sense of the wider resonances, in this case, mythic, religious, and nature-loving ones, attaching to the movement, rightly construed. The easiest way to corroborate the truth of this profile of basic musical comprehension before pondering carefully what is minimally required to underwrite it, is to reflect on what a listener's situation is like where any of these factors fail to materialize. Suppose a listener does not even hear the music as tonal, due most likely to coming from a wholly different musical tradition, for instance, that of Japan, India, or Indonesia. Then the alternating perfect and augmented fifths 
of the horn's opening call will have no particular significance for this listener. Neither will seem more strained than the other. Nor, more generally, will the various modulations from key to key which ensue in the course of the movement be registered by him in any way. Stripped of its tonal character in the hearing of such a listener, Bruckner's movement retains only the sense it has a, as a pattern of changing dynamics and timbers. Suppose next that a listener is capable of hearing the music as tonal, but fails to construe it as symphonic. He may take it initially to be a piece of mu chamber music for horn and strings, or else an orchestral piece, but one of short duration. Then he will, in the one case, be inappropriately disconcerted when the full panoply of voices enters some measures later, and in the other case, pointlessly puzzled by the clearly long-breathed character of the opening 18-bar statement. Categorizing the music as symphonic form, the outset obviously allows the listener to avoid such unintended effects. Next, consider the listener who hears the music as tonal and symphonic, but not as romantic in style, perhaps because of unfamiliarity with the difference between romantic music, its classical predecessors, and its 20th century successors. What will he be missing? Well, the expansiveness and rhetorical freedom of Bruckner's way of proceeding will not likely be appreciated for what it is. A listener experienced only in the music of Mozart, say, will likely grow impatient, wishing for a conciseness and pace of change that is not to be. Failing to situate the music as 19th century music, and thus as prior to all movie music, with its special burden of enhancing film narrative and audience involvement, could equally well lead a listener to hear in the Bruckner a pathetic, or melodramatic charge, which is not properly there. What of a listener who does not grasp movement as governed by a sonata idea? Such a person will be inert to many of the experiences that Bruckner has, so to speak, designed into his music. To grasp a sonata movement as a sonata is, in broadest terms, to take it as a falling into three phases. A first concerned with exposition, a second with exploration or development, and a third with restatement and return, recapitulation. It is also to be sensitive to the turning points from phase to phase, to certain norms of internal connection, i.e. shared thematic material key relationships, operating within and between these phases, and to the character of the whole as a kind of journey from home base, roughly the tonic, toward more or less remote lands, other keys, other guises of the basic musical materials, and eventually home again, exactly where you started out, in a sense, yet transformed by the journey. A listener whose hearing is not at all informed by sonata expectations in processing Bruckner's discourse might, for example, very well think the piece is at an end at the close of the first part of the exposition, with its hammered-out proclamation of F major and momentary silence, 
save for sustained Fs on horns. He will further not recognize the slowing down of musical activity in measures 170 to 190 immediately after a brutal four-measure fanfare in the brass, as the beginning of an exploratory, less structured phase of the music, calling for a different way of reacting. Nor will he, 50 measures later, experience the delicious wonder as to whether the horn call over tremolo strings at measure 217, clearly reminiscent of the movement's opening, is a sign that the return has begun, or only a kind of teaser, heralding instead more extensive wanderings and transformations. As it turns out, it is the latter, being an F rather than the E-flat, essential to a true return. The bona fide recap does not occur for another 150 measures. Lastly, he will not perceive in the final blazing peroration, measure 550 to end, the almost super, superhuman force which, rightly heard, emanates from this long-delayed harmonic and motivic reaffirmation. Instead of going in this way through the remaining marks on my list, I will assume the reader will take agree to take them or the majority of them, as intuitively plausible dimensions of basic comprehending listening. That given, the thing to note about them all is their implying a listening that is through and through contextual. For the music to be heard or experienced in those ways is for it to be related to, brought in some fashion into juxtaposition with, Patterns, norms, phenomena, facts, lying outside the specific music itself. Thus, to hear the movement as tonal is to hear it in relation, however implicitly, to an underlying scale and range of chords, and hearing the specific moment-to-moment flow and connectedness in a movement such as this can hardly be separated from hearing it tonally. To hear the movement as symphonic is to compare it with a template of features applicable to other symphonies and draw from them. To hear the movement as sonata-ing is to bring to bear on the music as it unfolds a general schema of sonata form with which the music can be seen to comply more or less, though in its own individual and sometimes temporarily deceptive way. To hear it as romantic or Brocknerian in character is obviously to connect it with other works of music by the composer, his contemporaries, and his predecessors. To hear the music not as disembodied tones, but the upshot of human actions applied to physical devices means, among other things, gauging musical events with respect to the dynamic ranges of the various instruments, which ranges are not transparently displayed in the piece at hand. To have the right series of expectations, the right awareness of implications and realizations, the right sense of the fall, rise and fall of tensions in the course of movement can come about only if one is perceiving the music against the backdrop of a host of norms associated with the style, genre, and period categories, 
and the individual compositional corpus to which the movement belongs. This leaves only 9 and 10, the listener's appreciation of the extra-musical content, if we may call it that, of Bruckner's musical essay. Can there be any doubt that this cannot fully emerge in the absence of connections made by the listener between sequences of sound and broad spheres of human life, lying wholly outside the notes themselves? It is worth going into the generation of this latter, content in somewhat more detail.